This is Sarah with an exciting announcement. We have just launched the SideWoo Collective, a new inclusive community of artists, metaphysical practitioners, and the Woo Curious. The SideWoo Collective is, for now, an online community focused on art, the metaphysical, and general wellness. Essentially all the things you love about the podcast, but in real life. Our first offering is a three-week online course with classes every Sunday at 6 p.m. between February 12th and the 26th. Classes include sigil making with artist and educator Rachel Dawson, Intuition 101 with tarot reader and Scottish witch Amelia Whitehouse of the Carnelian Keep, and Drawing Your Shadow with Yours Truly. You can go to our new website, thesidewoo.com, to sign up, get on our mailing list, or reach out with any questions. This will be a great way to engage with one another and get a better understanding of who this community is. I'm really excited to share it with you and hope to see you there. Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible, from the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Hi, this is Elizabeth, and welcome to the 27th episode of the Side Woo. On this week's conversation, we are talking with Jesse Bransford who is a professor in the Department of Art at New York University, an artist and organizer of the Biennial Occult Humanities Conference. Jesse's work has been involved with belief, magic, and the visual systems that are created. Recent work has focused on the folk magic of the Norse traditions, specifically the talismanic stave spells and the seder traditions. Parts of this work are collected in his recently published book from Fulgar Press, A Book of Staves. So, of course, Sarah and I thought that Jesse would be a great person to ponder over some of the big how and why questions. What are we searching for? How do we know when we've had a eureka moment? How do we talk about those eureka moments? And because it's the side woo, We, of course, ask questions about mental stability and instability, how taking psychedelic or psychiatric drugs influences, enhances, or inhibits our spiritual seeking. And then, of course, we segue very briefly into how all of this overlaps with one's dating life. So go spend a minute and rearrange that little altar on your mantle. Grab a cup of tea and listen to this week's episode where Sarah and I talk to Jesse Bransford. Okay, continue. <laughs> Nothing kills a room faster than pressing the record button. Right. Now say something stupid. <laughs> Act natural. Well, we like to always go over sun signs so we know what we're working with. <laughs> I think it came up, you're a Scorpio, as am I. So. Barely. I'm a Libra Scorpio cusp. Oh, what's your birthday? Third. Oh, I'm 21. Interesting. Okay. okay, so how does that manifest for you? Total Scorpio. Very conflicted. Scorpio that wants to be bad, but chastises those impulses pretty rigorously. My mom's a Libra, so... Is this breaking down in your head like Scorpio bad, Libra good? Do you feel like Libra... 
Ibra is. I know. I I take objection. Well, no, I mean, it's. uh, I've been repeatedly told it's the Scorpio's universe, and everybody else lives in it. It's true. I'm I'm into it. I'm in. You know, there are a lot of assets to it. But uh, being a male Scorpio in the present moment, there are a lot of trajectories for that that can go really, really south, really bad. (laughs) And I think it would be. It it can undermine your self development, basically. Well, yeah. I mean, we're at a time, a specific time in history, where how information is being delivered if it's with a Scorpio edge and it's coming right. from a gentleman land, lands in a certain way in 2022. Yeah. That is, that is for realsies. And it should be. I mean, that's the, yeah. you know, the, the trick to say on all that is that like, you know, for all of the liabilities it produces in my lived experience, it's, it's way past time that the, that the equalizations were happening. So I'm all for it as, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were kind of thinking we'd start with your own personal spiritual beliefs and what kind of personal explorations you've done mm-hmm. into the the world beyond the veil, yeah, if you will. Sure, sure. I mean, do you want me to just start rolling? I mean, I can go. Yeah, I'm just going to say one sentence is that you, this is sort of embarrassing. You're very articulate <laughs> and you talk, <laughs> you talk really eloquently about these very complicated subject matters and have such you actually have facts rather than just feelings about where things come from and the history. And, and I am so interested in in that, but I want to start out first with the personal experience, chewy chocolate center, you know, which is the little little emotional. Yeah. Yeah. The biographical part of it always comes in, but to just start with the biography is kind of an interesting, it's like, I'm like, Whoa, wow. Who are you? But I can do it. I can do it. I think I can do it. I think probably with regards to esoteric beliefs and experimental beliefs, experimental lifestyle, artistic innovation, all that stuff. I was raised in a Southern family that was, it, there was an active decision made by my parents to raise me agnostic, even though my mother certainly has Christian values and my father had a, a pretty clear ethical ground and had his own beliefs. But they they both came from families that, that were very, very strict and sort of un, unwavering and unquestioning in their religious positions. And it drove them crazy. It's pretty common or, or it's, it is a symptom of the urbanization of the Southeastern United States. I come from a pretty old Mm -hmm. redneck Southern family on both sides, but my parents were trying to break the mold or, or, you know, break the, the chain as they saw it. I was raised in Atlanta in a household that was like, there was not a lot of belief thrown around or there wasn't a lot of religion thrown around. It was very much more grounded in like being a good person. And them trying to figure out how do you instruct someone to be a good person without a religious dogma layered on top of it? Or do you have a step up <laughs> without a religious dogma? I mean, as far as I can tell. Yeah. All of their questions were being asked and answered like in the wake mm. of them raising a family. Yeah. And it brought, you know, all the stuff that, that we've sort of preambled up to the table. I mean, sort of gender equality, questions about lifestyle choices. I had an uncle who contracted AIDS in the first wave, was my mother's brother, who I was mm. extremely close and enamored of. And when he got sick, it all came out quite literally. I mean, the, the forcing out of the closet that the AIDS crisis created. I think everyone, at least my parents' generation, everyone suspected or knew that he was, he was queer, but, but it was going to be an elephant in the room forever, basically. But then when he got sick, he had to sort of say something. So that was like a first sort of big explosion. And I was being 
you know, because I wasn't religious and I didn't go to church, that was always, that put me, that's added to the weird little boy component. So it, it made me ask these reflexive questions about, you know, what is belief? Why do we need it? What is it, you know, what does it mean? Why do these people believe that, you know, Jesus Christ is a savior? Why do these people believe that Muhammad supersedes Jesus? All this stuff as I'm learning about it, which without the reference or without the cultural inflection of Southern Christianity, really put me in a, a liminal space for pretty much most of my childhood. Well, I grew up in New York and am Jewish and grew up like really New York and Jewish. So like very, very far from the sort of Christian mainstream that I realized more people had once I got to college where I was like, what is this country yeah. I live in? <laughs> it's different than, than what I thought. But one of the things that I still like in my heart when I hear it, I'm like, what the hell is that real? Is I did not know there was a like a battle between the occult and Christianity. I thought, wouldn't everything just sort of live happily? I mean, I just literally didn't know anything. Like yeah. the oldest battle. Like I had no, I, I was just like, you know, Christianity, there's this Jesus figure and the occult is, you know, there's spirits and I, I had no idea. So they, you, you would think they would get along, honestly. Well, now that I've seen what Christianity does not get along with, you know, it right. makes more sense. But were you guys like sort of exiled from your more Christian family at all? Or no, like, no. I mean, this is, here's one thing to keep in mind. I mean, like, first of all, there are as many kinds of Christianity as there are kinds of occult practice. And I mean, it's like, you know, the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, you know, it's founded on a 500 oh, yeah. year like screaming match between, you know, Northern Europeans, basically. I actually was just in Philadelphia this weekend and my friend of mine, who is a, a, an exquisite candle maker, took me to this site, which was supposedly the, the meditation chamber of this Christian mystic named Johannes Kelpius. I, I knew, I've heard the name before, but I didn't know that much about him. But he's one of these radical Christian experimentalists, Christian mystics, who came to Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania was founded as a, as a free thinkers state. Oh. So yeah, anyway, Christianity, when you say Christianity, when we talk about Christianity in negative terms, we're basically, I, I think more or less, I'm talking about a lot of Southern Methodist uh, opinions, a lot of Southern Baptist opinions. And some Roman Catholic opinions, but like there's variations in all that stuff. So yeah. it's important to keep that clear. I think that the religious, the, the religious right that we have confronted since the eighties is a political construct. It's not a belief construct. Yes, a hundred percent. And yeah, I've gotten this slight talking to recently because I've, I've lost my perspective because of the political climate nowadays where I'm like Christianity. No, no. And I so it, it's, it's good to be, I've like lost my sense. There is a, there is an, <laughs> there's a real easy critique of it and not yeah. even, an, I mean, there's a, there's a very valid critique of it on many levels. But we're in the nuance. We're in the nuance. I would, this will get to why I'm sort of holding on to the idea of magic as the, the blanket definition for all of this stuff that I'm interested in because it simplifies that nuance or, or it, it hopefully keeps open the door for the nuance to, to continually come in and come out. But yeah, the, the organized religious right that I'm talking about really came into focus in the eighties with Reagan. Reagan mobilized the South away from the traditional Southern Democrat model, right? Yeah, so you have right. this new religious fervor and, and that has religious power and has political power. And they went nuts over 
secular belief systems. I was just, it's so funny. The, all these things we're talking about and there's so, already like a thousand overlaps, but I was just listening to Ozzy Osbourne's record, Blizzard of Oz, which was at the center of the religious right attack, the first first layer of the culture wars, right? Oh, shit storm. And yeah, it was basically like, this guy's a Satanist, blah, 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 just sort of madness. And of course, like when I start hearing this news as a 12 year old boy, I'm like, where do I sign up? You know, like, yeah. where do I this? so, you know, it, and that's, that actually leads back into, you know, more towards like the development of me, like finding that material being repurposed for a, a political rebellion against these monolith structures that are, that are right. presenting themselves to me as a child was really, really useful. And I, you know, I took it as like a middle finger to the screw the man and all that stuff. It wasn't until much later that I was, I was able to find the nuance and able to start constructing what I think we would call in this discussion, like my belief system or more or less. I think music is a, an entry point for a lot of people into spirituality, sort of agnostic spirituality, where you have a transcendent experience that's part of a whole. So, I mean, it, it's interesting just to bring it up in that sense. No, no. Every mystical tradition that I've ever encountered has like an extremely strong relationship to some, mm. to some idea of music. This guy, uh, Kelpius that I'm talking about was a, it's claimed that he wrote this collection of, of religious hymns that are really, really beautiful and transcendent. You know, the Sufis, they have all of their musical traditions, et cetera, et cetera. Wait, so he had followers his society was i'm googling him and yeah 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 it's fascinating he had a society called society of the women in the wilderness the woman in the wilderness woman in the wilderness the woman and it's funny because whether or not the cave is real is up for debate but the cave had some spray paint in it and it was wrong it was like the women of the wilderness like no it's the woman i don't know enough about the material i just started looking for there's apparently there's one book that a scholar has written in the last 10 years on the historical figure and i want to know i want to know more i definitely want to know more well it's interesting too because sorry i'm just like geeking out on his wikipedia page yeah his he was born johan kelp in transylvania and then changed his name to oh yeah to Johannes Kelpius maybe because it had a fancier ring or something that's just funny really funny to me well it's a they latinized names like he went to school oh, and got okay. a PhD and when you went when you went to school at that time your whatever your name was it got latinized because you were writing your dissertation in Latin you were talking to everybody <laughs> in Latin I see I love that you know that too thank you for answering well I mean I just I was on the Wikipedia page like earlier this week so. I'm not, you're not that far okay, behind you know, in the knowledge. On I was that. Very yeah, it's like one Wikipedia page and a couple of secondary articles and you'll be up okay. to speed with me. <laughs> so yeah, heavy metal music, more or less. I was one of these kids that I identified with certain genres, but like I listened to prog rock. I listened to sixties hippie music and like none of my friends knew what to do with me because I had the heavy metal friends. I had the, the hippie friends. I had the punk rock friends and it eventually all mushed together. And then that, you know, that sort of became the site of my adolescence and also me trying to come to some conclusions and figure out what belief would be. And then psychedelics entered the picture pretty mm. early, frankly. I was a pretty precocious kid at that. How did they change? Did they amplify or quicken your spiritual search or, or wrecked you? They just kind of wrecked, they just, re I mean, in the beginning, they just wrecked any notion of like consensual reality. It was just kind of like, oh, all of these structures that everybody's talking about that's real. It's all one step away from just total miasma. 
And I likened it as a younger, as, as a kid at the time, I sort of paired it with like a very romantic notion of madness, right? It was all about accessing madness because most of my friends today would have been diagnosed mm. as bipolar or, you know, neurodivergent in some way, shape or form. And so it was, for me, it was a kind of way to like crack open, like a, mm. just to sort of prove to myself that like nothing's real, that like the reality, the reality structures that I'm fighting against are, are actually pretty illusory there. I reaccess it again in my early thirties, early to mid thirties. And that has a, a different sort of transformative effect, but we'll get to that. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, or maybe we could, I mean, like, to, unless there's more that you want to talk about when you're younger, but I think it'd be interesting to use that as a parallel. When you were older, you did use ayahuasca to enhance a spiritual journey. Yeah. I mean, if you want me to, uh, we can jump ahead and I can talk about that, which is, you know, like we're in a moment where all of the, all of the psychoactive materials are being revisited, both in academia and the medical industry. I got into an argument with an academic because I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of medicines interventions with these materials because their history with psychedelics is pretty bad. They just weaponize it. And in fact, that tends to be the Western technological mandate, which is like, find something, isolate it, amplify it by a thousand and then yeah. deploy. And I think on the medicine sort of ethnobotany side, like they're all like we have, there is, there is a truth here that has been ignored in the so-called war on drugs used with intention and, and to a purpose. It can actually be a really, really good consciousness amplification technique, which is yeah. Not unrelated to my ideas about magic, which again are slightly different from I think what we were what your assumptions were before. For me, it's not about power. It's not about it's not about gain. It's about it's about self self knowledge. Magic in particular, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the magic, all of all of these techniques for me are sort of for for and towards like self actualization, self discovery, self improvement, etc. Is the, you know how when you've taken a drug that's really working, I mean, and, and it's doing what you want it to, this is very, very historical. I have, I've not taken drugs in a very long time, but where you're, ha you have a moment of clarity or revelation, or you have that sense of knowing something. I feel like it's hard to put language and words into that moment. Mm -hmm. And, and that moment, I mean, in some ways is, is like a peak spiritual experience, but not connected to a, to any set notion of divine. But would you say that in some ways, what you're do academically and the conferences are, are they part of sort of looking at that particular moment of like extreme clarity when you take something that opens you up and you're able to engage? I, I mean, I can speak to my research. I think the goals are a little broader. But, but certainly the, the Eureka moment, which is what I call it and what a lot of scientists call it is something that I'm really fascinated by. I think it's related to like the Eastern ideas of Satori and, you know, enlightenment and, and whatnot. Is that like Oprah's aha moment or is that something grander where you reach like some kind of peak experience or maybe you could describe that? It can be both. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's on a scale, right? I, I mean, certainly like, you know, the, there are moments of revelation. I mean, I haven't had a revelation that has made me want to start a religion. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, like I'm not, I'm not Buddha level enlightened by any, I think that there are grades for sure. The Eureka moment is something that a lot of scientists talk about, and it's something that's studied in psychology. So how do scientists figure out the, you know, the game changing, you know, like 
equations or whatever. Is there is there an example just for context? Like what would be a eureka moment that we would be able to contextualize this? I mean, like one maybe that you've had. The one that I've had. Well, I mean, my eureka moments are my eureka moments are pretty mundane. I mean, I think like. There are no small miracles. I was going to use the Eureka moment to get at this. A lot of scientists, when they talk about the moment where they figured out a big problem, they say it just came into their head, right? It just came into their head as a, in a moment of inspiration. And I think- So like solving a problem and it just kind of comes in. So I think that's, I would call that yeah. one of the small, I mean, the reason that it's important in science is because scientists focus their entire career into these like problem moments. Whereas like yeah. most problems are pretty like, you know, they're not more than two steps away. Right. Like we're, you know, with science, we're talking about problems that like a thousand people have like, you know, devoted their lives to blah, 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 blah. So, but the aha moment itself, I think is, is the most mundane experience of enlightenment. Um, I would, yeah, but not less important. No, 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 not less important. I just think it's, it's, it's the mild. Just to argue that like divine intervention at any level, I think is pretty important. Absolutely. I just think I'm thinking in scale. Like I, I want to say it's, it's a, uh, it's, is it, it might be Richard Feynman. He's like a physicist. There's a couple of famous physicist stories and I'm not, I don't have them like right at hand. And I, sh I that was one thing that I was going to try to look up before we started talking, but they talk about being in the shower. Like they got up, they didn't sleep very well. They're about to go into the office to like work on the same equation they've been working on for 10 years. And then all of a sudden in the shower, there it is. It just, it resolves itself. And I think that when I read the, my first experience of reading about the idea of Satori comes from the beat poets and their description of Satori or of, of that sort of everyday enlightenment, I think is, is a, is something that it's super important. I mean, it's life-changing. It's definitely life-changing. And I think it, it's, it's a, yeah. it enables a lot of people, myself included, to sort of like put your foot down and say, oh, I, I see a fork in the road and I'm going to go that way, right? That's one way of putting it. Yeah, I think it's immeasurable in a way that maybe a scientific invention isn't. Well, it's not the invention. The invention you know is I mean? irrelevant. I was just trying to use... No, but no, I'm, I, I, I know where you're coming from. I get the idea of someone solving a problem in science and that maybe is scaled larger than me figuring out why I have patterns with certain people or something, you know, however, yes, it's happening at a smaller level, but honestly, it's equally as powerful because of the, the way that explodes through time and space. One person having a aha moment that seems really small and then kind of expands outward. You don't know what kind of impact those small moments have. So just- Well, what you're describing in a way is is another one of what I would call, that. that's like the, the psychedelic aha moment, like the, the recognition. Or butterfly effect is kind of more what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say the recognition of the butterfly effect. It's a felt experience rather than a narrative experience. You know, like, there are plenty of movies that have tried to illustrate the butterfly effect. And I think like the verbal description of, of it as an effect, but the feeling of it or the, 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 the certainty of that truce that's felt particularly in certain psychedelic reveries is, I think is one of the most important experiences a person can have. Um, I guess, cause like I'm coming from, I haven't ever taken psychedelics and I would just argue that, yeah, that can happen at any time, any place. Absolutely. And still be important. Absolutely. You know, it doesn't have to happen within the construct of intentionality around expanding your mind. You know, I think it happens all the time. 
it happens all the time. And then to circle back to another sort of like, again, thinking about when these things happen, especially if you're, if you're trying to facilitate them, many of the techniques for facilitating have dangers attached to them. And mm. the, the cautionary tale of, of recent times, of course, is the psychedelic experiment. And I don't want to stick. I mean, I have like, I just use it as a metaphor and it, it is a place where I have a reasonable amount of experience, but Alan Watts, who wasn't just a psychedelic guru. I mean, he was a religious scholar. He basically on the question of these kinds of like revelatory experiences and the facilitations towards them, he says something very terse and very sort of cloy, which is like, you know, yeah, it's like when you're on the telephone, when the conversation is over, don't forget to hang up the phone. And this, you know, again, back to my childhood sort of ethics structure and also being a Scorpio, Scorpios, we tend towards excess, that sort of measured idea of don't forget to hang up the phone kind of thing. It's an important uh, idea. Do you mean like in terms of like energetic closure or? Yes. Yeah. Well, and anyone who's ever dabbled in the spirit world knows that, yeah, you, if you're doing a meditation, you call in your guides, like one, it's disrespectful to leave them hanging. And then two, not really knowing what else is out there that you're open to. And I think you can do that even just in your meditation, if you open yourself up too much. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, I think Watts's like ultimate angle is like, go meditate. That's all you need. <laughs> go meditate. If you're trying trying to facilitate these openings, like go meditate. And it's like, it's the, it's the most tried and true way of doing it. I mean, it's slower though, than, you know, it, it's occasionally nice to jump onto the speeding highway of psychedelics, but yeah, I, I appreciate or of ritual magic or of, you know, right. hot, hot yoga. Exactly. I did a, a yoga class where it, it was almost a little bit culty where we, no, it was a part of a spire workshop. That sounds very culty. So, which was kind of, it was like a little segue I went into about 15 years <laughs> ago and it was like, don't talk about it. Show people what the experience is, bring them wow. in. You know, it, there was a whole thing, but there was a lot of experiences which were facilitated basically by hyperventilating yeah. mm. and so we would do like massive hyperventilation Whoa. before engaging in certain type of um oh, interesting you know rituals to do energy or emotional cleansing and it it was kind of okay and then also kind of a hot mess which is i i think when we have such powerful tools at our disposal such as a drug or cutting off oxygen to, to our brains you know or extreme heat or extreme heat it's hard for us to maintain our thresholds and responsibly well i mean i think in a lot of ways like it is about sort of questioning and breaking down those thresholds to a degree it's like um techniques of ecstasy is this book by mercia mercia i always i've heard i always said mercia but somebody said mercia recently eliad who is a an a, a somewhat controversial anthropologist slash religious scholar. And uh, yeah, it's a catalog of like all the ways that people tweak their physiology or their, their social experience. I mean, all these things are, are techniques towards accessing this supernal or uh, sort of outside space. And it's, it's unbelievable how many ways you can do it. It's what about the God machine? Have you, what do you know about? Oh yeah, I've heard about that. There's like a, there's a machine that you attach to your head. Oh, and oh, oh, uh -huh, uh -huh, Yeah, uh -huh. that. It's like, 
tapping into your like theta theta band or something. Yeah, it's, it's physiologically based, and then it you know you have a spiritual experience, mechanical tripping. I have no firsthand experience with those techniques. Is that the one they do with pilots who are going to be going to G force? They prep them for potential like brain issues where you can have them go almost towards death where they see the light and then they bring them back and they can go and see the light and come back like multiple times. Yeah. Which I would not mess around with that shit, but (laughs) you know. Yeah. 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 I'm trying to remember what the original question was. Yeah. To continue with that thought, when we first talked, you said that one of your Eureka moments was in Peru when you were doing a retreat there and you did ayahuasca and you came to the realization that nature was at the center of all life force and energy on the planet. These are things that I had intellectually come to the conclusion, you know, like again, when I was a child watching Attenborough do his thing, it was like, oh, why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we churning everything up and like trashing it? But, but again, this back to this idea of it being a felt experience, the, the sort of cosmic wholeness and the natural order being the, the rubric that grounds it all. That was pretty real. And then it got weird because I got visited. I mean, there were, there were visitations from whom? Various entities. Were they related to you or they were just not connected to your family or anything? Or, I mean, that would be a whole episode in and of itself, but just quickly. Yes, please. Yeah. I saw my grandfather who I was going, he was still alive, but he, he was near death. And it indicated to me that he was going to die within the next like three months, which he did. I was visited by a, what McKenna calls like the insect people. And I, I think, oh, yeah. I think it's not like unlike multidimensional uh, is what Amy calls well, it. just one of the multidimensional beings. The one that sort of sticks around that has shown up in seances is one of these orb entities okay. that basically communicate via electromagnetic pulsations. Yeah. And I'm like, I say it out loud and I'm just like, yep. That's what it was. That's what it is. No, we're here for it. I've seen like gray people, which are like what mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. mediumship community people call aliens. I've seen various weird multidimensional bugs as well. They look like centipedes or snakes or like weird sea kelp. Ooh, I haven't seen the sea kelp. You know, and you pull that out of your body. Yeah, like so basically because they're floating around and they're here on Earth investigating and learning about the planet in this dimension everyone has many multi-dimensionals in their energy field and so any single person will have dozens in their chakras and in their auric field and you just you have to know how to look for them but yeah it's like totally normal that they are around yeah i have some students that have gone on to become sort of energy healers and they've talked about like you know they can get into things that they're not supposed to be in and that's that's a part of the healing dynamic yeah they kind of get stuck and then some of them have a more nefarious purpose but for the most part they get lost or something and find your aura and just get in there Um, This is, I think, a great, it's like, I want to put this on blast this moment, because I feel like this is a really central part of the side woo is like, when does the conversation cross the line? And we don't think we're not, you haven't crossed the line. There's no line being crossed. But it feels, but in terms of the cultural consumption of what a cult means, of what energy work means, of what seeing things, it's okay to see things 
that are beyond our dimension that we're in until you actually see things. And then it's maybe not as cool. But I I, like I really want to pause it because I think it's a really precious moment to to just put on blast to use Gen Z vernacular where I think it transitions from an an academic or a verbal within still within sort of this Judeo-Christian acceptability. And then boom, you're right outside of it. And you know, there is a clutch your pearls response. And yeah, I listened to it. And I mean, I love this shit. I love it. I love it. I love it. But yeah, I'm like, oh my God, that sounds nuts. Tell me more. Robert Anton Wilson calls it Chapel Perilous. I think it's in the Cosmic Trigger, one of his really good books. And he, he's basically saying, when you start courting this material, things get weird. It gets, it gets weird. I have these narratives that I've put together. Like I have a trajectory of weirdness in my magical practice. I have a trajectory of weirdness in my psychedelic practice. I have a trajectory of weirdness in my artistic practice. And there's a moment where you get exactly what you're talking about. Like the blast moment he calls the do or die moment. You're either in or you're out. And one of the problems is, especially in this moment, for me, has been coming to terms with it in the wake of QAnon. Oh, Lord. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not interested in making a narrative that I expect other people to believe and to make decisions based on. What I'm talking about and what I hope listeners are cognizant of is that I'm courting the space of the weird to try to figure out how to be a person and how to be, you know, a compassionate, reasonable and constructive, positive force in the universe, right? And I felt as though the tools that I was given in my childhood were inadequate to that task on all fronts. The only thing that I would say is that we we sort of came to adulthood in a moment, and the moment hopefully will last at least a couple of hundred years, where the jigs up, where there is a space open for inquisitive minds. Rather than being burned at the stake, I'm allowed to pursue my own way instead of being put into electroshock therapy to, you know, get the gay out of me or whatever. All of these, these normalizing mechanics are at their weakest right now. And they are weakened. We're here to paranormalize. I saw a meme like, let's not normalize, let's paranormalize. (laughs) That's what we're here for. Nice. Nice. I think that's that's important to acknowledge because you know some some of the darker some of the darker internet stuff, which is used towards controlling culty aims, you know that's a danger as well. There are ways that these tactics can be used to unhealthy ends, and the same goes for the sociological and social dimension of this material. People can have negative intentions with it, which is yeah. it's a bummer, <laughs> but it's true. And uh, it's I just wanted to sort of say that as clearly as I possibly could as an educator. No, I think it's a good point. And I also think it's important to say, I don't know how you saw the visions that you saw, but for me, it always happens like I'll go into meditation and then energetically these things, like if I scan someone's energy field, they show up the way that a visualization would show up. It's like energy and an image on a screen rather than an object floating in space. Although I know certain people are more advanced and can see ghosts and whatever at that level where they just open their eyes and they know what is what. But like for you, yeah, I'm curious, like when you had your visions, like, is it with your eyes open, like everything looks that way? Yeah. Okay. I've developed different disciplines and practices over the course of the last 30 years, some with greater degrees of success than others. I can visualize in a closed eyes space and get very, very rich data, rich information. 
I'm not able to outwardly present it and I'm still not very good at reading. I mean, I can read people to a degree, but I don't see it the way that I know many people do. So there's that. I, I feel as though I have an insight into what the calibration points are because of the ayahuasca experience, because there was an onset okay. of the experience that starts with, you know, things feeling druggy and then a, a screen interface kicking in that you just described, but then the screen interface overtaking the visual field, like the tactile visual field. So it goes, you go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which I think eventually does. That is kind of how it's described by people who are like, for the first time, my eyes were open, but I saw these spirits like walking with a bunch of people and they're like, I'd never seen it that way before. Or like an aura, you know, like all of a sudden I saw them with my eyes instead of my third eye. So yeah, that's really interesting. Early descriptions that tried to ethologize the experience called them entoptic forms, which are like float, you know, it's not really, it's somewhat related to like floaters in your eye. It's not that. They have agency, they have their own sort of way of doing things. And if my head is making it up, it's making up a dynamic that I have, I am not privy to consciously or unconsciously. And so I've had similar experience in my ceremonial magic practice where I've gotten tangible results that I can convert into narrative form in a way that people have been doing sure. for thousands of years, which, you know, again, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. I, I've been able to do things with the material for my own, you know, value and, you know, reality calibration and all that stuff. But, you know, when I tell the stories, it's, it's just, it just becomes another narrative on the vaults of Eurowid or ghosthunters.com or whatever. And what's been interesting for me is trying to calibrate the experiences in a way that where they do take on a social dimension that is definitely not QAnon trajectory. Where you're using it to be a better person, like you said, or helping someone else or... Or just building community that has stated positive intentions. I think, you know... Yeah, of course. The Occult Humanities Conference was something that it was a, an attempt in that direction. The conference came from conversations that I've been having with the my close colleague and fellow practitioner, Pam Grossman, who wrote an amazing book called Waking the Witch. She ran, God, what do you call it, a programming space called Observatory for many years. And I did several things for her in that milieu. And we kept talking and sharing names. And, and we realized that we had this whole pool of people. And Observatory was on the wane. And she was trying to figure out you know, what the next platform would be. And I had been trying to decide how to position or what to do with my academic standing with regards mm. to this material. I had been, you know, like I've never shied yeah. away from it, but I, I wanted to start using my academic credentials and my academic resources a little more intentionally rather than just teaching my classes and working with great students. It was like, oh, right. Like most people do other things with the, the resources the university has. So we sort of came up with this conference and, you know, she's a very community minded person. I've learned a lot from her about being a good person. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of like did the first one and were curious to see what would happen. And it was so off the charts in terms of its reception and the positive space that it created. Positive, but also not without discourse, right? I feel like there were, there have been moments of pause and moments of reckoning in 
every single one of these conferences that we've done, I guess we've done four of them now. And uh, yeah, they just sort of snowballed from there. I was amazed at how strangely receptive the university was to it. The The word humanities is the secret, I think, because the humanities... Uh, oh, absolutely. It slaps an institution, a history. It's like occult, witches, spirits, Harvard. You know? <laughs> also, it's funny because NYU is a science school. And the humanities are seen as like the soft skulled part of the, of the institution. Like they actually, it's all humanities. It's, it's non-quantifiable. Yeah. And that's the position that most humanities scholars have been pushed into. There was a moment from, I'd say like the thirties to the sixties where they wanted to quantify the social sciences. And then statistics came along and said, yes, oh yes, yes. And this goes to my whole weaponization mm. narrative. And I remember, I remember when the second Gulf War happened, mm -hmm. there was talk of sending anthropologists into the field to help the soldiers navigate their interactions with the locals. It was like one of those moments where it's like, oh, right. The social sciences, like, what are, what are we going to do with that? And I, I knew a bunch of PhD students in anthropology at that point, and actually a couple of anthropologists who were just horrified, you know, absolutely horrified. But also, shouldn't we all... Be more informed. You go into someone else's country and like, I don't know. Well, they, I mean, it, it's, you know, I, again, not to turn this into a political statement, but like we shouldn't, we shouldn't have invaded Iraq anyway, you know, like absolutely not. That was the bad, that was the wrong move. Like the anthropologist, you know, if, if you want to do, if you want social, want social change. That's a lot of pressure for that <laughs> anthropologist. Like it takes generations, nonviolent social change is, is education. I just wanted to highlight when you were saying, how do you keep something in check, which isn't data-driven and, and intentions, you know, obviously I'm not comparing the cult humanities conference to Jonestown, but I just mean like, well, <laughs> you know, we're like, you have intentions and they're really good and you want to build a utopia. And then all of a Here, sudden- drink this Kool-Aid. Here, have some, you're thirsty, you know? A little mixer afterwards. But I think- being able to have moments of reckoning where the information that is thought through by the people, by the participants can then change the framework that's coming from the organizers. Then the, so we're, it's like a call and response. And it was a feedback loop for sure. Yeah. Feedback loop. Thank you. And the, one of the things that's been interesting is, you know, the, the, the terms that we used, you know, we tried to define them in the beginning but one of the things we we were adamant, I mean, the American version of this material, it's not strictly European. And there the American experience is has these global colonial ramifications. And we really have spent a lot of time and energy trying to make it as global and as diverse as possible, which is it's not easy. We've been really lucky, not only because we both have pretty wide knowledge bases and connection to places to be able to sort of widen these, these pathways. But the when you're the perfect spokesperson, because of you're able to articulate in this really institutionalized academic way, all these histories to kind of build a case for what you're doing now and why it's important to bring it forward into the future. I appreciate that. We've been looking for you like Liz and I, cause we've, yeah, we've been saying this for months and months and months. We need a bridge of somebody who is in it, who maybe has seen a, an entity or two in their life, but who can step back and then talk about it and understand why some people might not be excited by it. It's just, 
this is not a very common space. I feel like what we're in right now, which is the marriage of academics and more formal history and the spirit world. Like it's, 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 it's a net, it seems like a little place. And that's why when we saw the occult humanities conference, I sort of lost my mind a little bit. I'm glad Peter was able to point you towards this. The other thing that's funny is that when we started it, there there weren't that many, but it's, it's exploded. I mean, the, the academic community, Rice University just instituted a think tank. There's a research center at some at oh, another university. Fine. I should I should have written all these down so that they could be mentioned. But Jeffrey Cripple, K-R-I-P-I-A-L, he's a really, really great religious scholar who has pioneered a bunch of these kinds of gestures. Lately, I've been involved with an interesting surrealist research group called the International Society for the Study of Surrealism. A leitmotif in surrealism is magic. So I'm, I'm not the expert, but I'm one of, I get to go because, hey, Jesse, do you know about this? And sometimes I do. But academia is another space where it can get a little top-down and, and constrictive. And I think that for me anyway, I just feel, I I never thought I would feel as privileged to be an artist as I do these days, because I have found the sort of institutional space to work within, you know, I'm not tenured, so don't, uh, don't jinx it, but I think I'm going to be able to have the rest of my career as, as a member of the NYU Steinhardt Art Department. I mean, that's my intention. I've given a lot to that, that place. That has nothing to do with the occult. It has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. I mean, so anyway, it was one of these sweet spots where when Pam and I sort of realized that we could actually probably do it, that I was pretty excited and and thought it might actually work. And it did. And it's produced some really interesting ongoing conversations and a a loose confederation of like-minded people who, you know, are sharing thoughts and sharing ideas and writing books and printing journals and it's all that kind of stuff. So it's been a real privilege and it's been amazing. If you could just share the basic premise of the Occult Humanities Conference, just for listeners who haven't Googled it already. And, you know, so my art background, that's, it's a, it's a whole other story. I'm, I'm an, actually, I'm an artist and all of these experiences, certainly since my like mid to late twenties were sort of have been taken on in the interest of like thinking very intensely about what art could be. And I think art is one of those terms in an increasingly overdetermined vocational sphere mm. that we live in. Art is one of these places where it does it, art will never know what it is because it's constantly becoming. And I'm attracted to that. And I I've championed it pretty much my entire academic and artistic career. But the the Occult Humanities Conference represented a shift for me into uh, the recognition that a lot of the art that I was interested in had quietly and to the side been investigating all of these, all of the, what what you're calling woo, but I've just decided to call magic. And in, in the instantiation of the conference, we've just called it the occult. And the, the, the use of the word occult had sort of like a, a, a little bit of a jab to it, which is like this notion of hidden, right? The notion of hidden knowledge that runs parallel to the known knowledge. And in the original structures, it was seen next to the sciences as in a handshake agreement. You know, the known and the unknown are forever intertwined, right? And then 
the historical part separates the occult, the hidden, and and what can't be seen is not known and is therefore not a part of the conversation. This is before the Hema of Clint exhibition. I mean, it's before the Rosicrucian show at the Guggenheim. It's before any of these sort of collections and, and investigations of magic and art. And I'm not claiming that we started it, but I think we were early advocates of the of the the riff. Still part of momentum building. Yeah, I can be proud of that. I can be proud to have been an early yeah. advocate of it. And to, you know, to the extent that I've, you know, helped create these networks, it's been really satisfying. It also became kind of, the occult was a uh, somewhat of a catch-all term at the beginning because we had people that wanted to talk about alchemy. We had people that wanted to talk about, you know, ghost hunting. We had people that wanted to talk about, I'm trying to think, this is all the first stuff. You know, we had Mark Pilkington who runs uh, Strange Attractor Press. He did a whole lecture about technologically augmented these weird machines that could talk to angels. It yeah. was very, it was a very, very wide yeah. space. And it was also yeah. like the where credulity mm. sat and the perspective that the presenter was coming from was left open as well. And that's also been interesting. So art historians will come and talk about, you know, I'm trying let me, let me think of a good example. Well, like Bob Casolino of the MIA in Minneapolis just did the Supernatural America. Supernatural America. It was interesting because after talking to him, his lens was so different than what someone who is a practitioner or whatever might be. And so, yeah, just so you didn't have to come up with an example, but maybe you know that show. Yeah, no, no, no. I saw the show and I actually oh, cool. met him when he was putting together the show in Lilydale. He, oh, he actually, awesome. Shannon Taggart, who I introduced you to, and I hope you do something with, yeah. because it would be nice and timely because her seance book is just being reissued. She'll be our next after you probably. She's lovely. And she's also, she was one of our first speakers. And she's a really interesting person because her relationship to the material began much more skeptical and she's kind of remained a little bit in the middle of it in a way that, that I respect. And I think it's really good. I mean, I think there's so many different ways to position yourself in the numinous, right? I have a general question about the professionalization of things that become more studied and brought into sort of a more focused lens. And I'm just going to have an analogy for a moment with RuPaul's Drag Race, because my son is named after nice. RuPaul, his middle name. And, you know, at the beginning seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race, there was a much more scrappy aesthetic. It was people from all over the country and all over the world. But it, it, there was much more of a DIY. It was underground. It was, you know, and I'm sure everybody can tell what I'm about to say. Imagine what exactly. it looked like in the 70s and the 80s. Well, I grew up in Manhattan and I went to the clubs where RuPaul was dancing on a table in the 80s. But regardless of that, you know, by season 12, the people who are winning are $10,000 dresses and have come up with mentors and have family oh, members that are like, you're a drag queen. We love you at 14. I mean, the whole, and it to oh, now lame. achieve in that world is becoming harder and harder and more expensive and more expensive. And I do feel like part of the practices of the occult is sort of the, the back alley way of it. I think of photography in the seventies where it was, you could take a black and white photograph, write a word scrappily on it and be like, here it is. And now it's just, it's this conceptual essay piece and you have to know how to do like 75 different technical things and yeah. how this modernization of 
a cult might change it in a way that it becomes both harder to achieve and more, I don't know. And Well, I have an example of that. I, I love that comparison to RuPaul's evolution because I think we're at a stage where it is becoming a little bit more mainstream. And so last year I created a planner for keeping track of the moon and whatever. I had gone to Barnes and Noble and I was looking for planners and I just like didn't see anything that I wanted. And I was like, you know, I don't see any that have anything astrological. And I feel like that's so popular right now. I'm surprised. Well, you know, fast forward like a year and there are shelves of them and someone made one exactly like mine, but spiral bound and flashier gold on the cover. And it was like, oh my God, like within a matter of months, all of a sudden the market was hit with all these new tools. And then if you look at the books on the account, you know, just as someone who was trying to get into it on a product level for a moment, I think that's already happening. And the capitalism takeover, that is definitely happening. But yeah, I'm curious how that manifests on your level. I mean, for me, again, as an academic, I've sort of sidestepped the whole thing. And I'm realizing that as I get older, I've, I've made a lot of sidesteps that were somewhat intentional at the time, but I didn't realize that they actually shielded me from a lot of problems that I spend a lot of time thinking about on other people's behalf. The, a metaphor that I would use is, you know, it's it's the distinction of graduating from small business, single proprietary owner to introducing a level of automation of delegation. Mm. And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the 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 machine, the fashion machine is real and it is an all devouring mechanism. It is becoming more mainstream in a way that the base knowledge that took centuries to pass on orally and through grimoires are now being mass produced. And while there is capitalism supporting that, like it's becoming more common language, like the shared knowledge, kind of like with drag race, everybody knows about it, even if you're living in the suburbs. The, the, uh, the, the parody I would use in the classroom is, yeah, you got RuPaul's Drag Race and you've got the Harry Potter yeah, yeah, yeah. So like we're going towards the Harry Potter level, maybe. Um, let's, let's pull the, the capitalism away for a minute and let, let's talk yeah. about it as a broader social thing. And I think, yeah, that, social. you know, it's funny, Kelpius was a millennialist and he basically was convinced that the energy level in the world was being raised and that there was going to be an emergence from the wilderness that would bring about the apocalypse. He set a date like all, I think did, we're there. Like all did cults <laughs> do. And of course, the day came and went and, you know, it didn't really happen. I'm sort of an advocate of the every day is an apocalypse, you know, like every, I think so. every reboot of my consciousness. It's like I sit up and it's like there are all these mm. things that I could do. And then there's the habits. So it's like every, you know, if, if I think of every day as having an infinite potential that can produce some cool results, it can also get, you oh, know, yeah. it can also get me in a lot of trouble, which it's done before. But it's all about how you harness it. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that is, it's it's back to what we were saying before. I think we're in a moment where, like, the harnessing of the energy that we contain in ourselves is on us in a way that it hasn't been in a long, long time. The way that the magical egregore or metaphor is sort of entering into the pop culture consciousness, it's like it is disseminating agency. I think in the same way that mm. a lot of the, a lot of the drag stuff is disseminating agency to people that would have historically been oppressed. Pam actually talks about this and has interviewed a couple of people on her podcast. She's a big drag race fan. 
So I know she could probably speak more eloquently to it, but I'd see it as a dispersal of agency and, and trying to seed this idea that we have control of our own destinies much more than we think we do. And I like that. Do I like the fact that there are a thousand planners in every bookstore and all that? Not so much, but you know, when I meet the small business owners that are making a living working with this material, I haven't met a shill yet. They're all sweethearts. Yeah, I, I own a shop in Oakland. That's what I do for a living now. And we sell handmade items, basically, of ceramics and skincare and books and journals, mm -hmm. but really with a specialty in with specialty in everything that interests me. There, there's a lot of astrology and, and palm reading and, you know, uh, magic and occult and ritual at my shop. Okay. I want to make sure we get to your book of staves that you wrote, which is a whole oh, other yeah, yeah, line yeah. of inquiry that yeah. you've been involved with. Well, it goes back to this idea of dissemination and looking at magic and looking at magical practices. Like I've really, really gravitated towards practices that are anthropologically categorized as folk traditions, right? These are the non-canonized, non-taught. There's not a school that you go to to learn about it. It's wisdom that is handed out on a village level or on a community level. And my mom and my grandmother both had a lot of this that they didn't know. I went to Iceland in 2013 to, I was chasing somebody that I was in love with. And Iceland hit me like a ton of bricks. I got there and it just... I knew it was going to be amazing, but it was ontological. It was, it, it, it reset being without any meditation, without any drugs, without any of that, just being there had, had these, it was a single week long epiphany that I just kept being like, you've got, it was like, pinch me, pinch me. Is this real? Is this real? Is this real? We ended up going up to the north, the West Fjords, which is the magical center. I mean, the whole island is magical. The whole island is, but the West Fjords, there is a museum and I actually put it in my notes so I would say it properly because it is the Museum of Icelandic Witchcraft and Sorcery. And it's in a village called Homavik, which is in the West Fjords. And we ended up going there and it sort of put the icing on the cake. You know, we were stopping at hot springs along the way and I was having these super, super intense. The minute I hit the water, I would go into a low level oh, yeah. trance state and just you. be completely lost. And then she was obsessed with going to as many as she poss as we possibly could. So we hit like five in a row on our way up to the West Yards. And we got up to the West Yards and it started snowing and the roads became impassable. And I thought we were going to die and there was nowhere to stay. And we ended up staying in a big hotel. It was like a total shining scene. It was like <laughs> me and her and the caretaker of the space. Who has been there forever. Totally, you know, yeah, total, you know, horror movie slash magical narrative, whatever. But the museum itself was amazing. And they had all these, these translated books. And I basically became obsessed with the Icelandic magic tradition, which is a pretty vibrant, very, very long lived and only recently sort of ebbed. And I think it's on the rise again. And it has a pretty complete and small collection of, of these magic documents. And the guy that started the museum who has since passed, but the museum's still there. He was translating these grimoires or these magic books and making them available. 
And there's this visual language that blew my mind. And it oh, was really? like things that I was dreaming about. It was like things that I was drawing. It was very, very uncanny to me in a way that I was like, I need to do something with this. You recognized it. You knew it and you recognized it when you saw it. Exactly. Whoa. So I uh, Well, you look like a Viking kind of, like just for listeners. He's like blonde. He's got blonde eyebrows and like a big beard. I haven't done any of the any of the genetics tests yet, but I'm pretty sure that I I'm the result of of a Viking raid. To bring it back, like you said, I recognized it and I started working with it. And I I had just bought a house in upstate New York, so the nature component became this kernel that immediately transferred. Oh yeah. And I just I I kept downloading PDFs and reading every book I could get my hand on, and then it started to happen that like until the pandemic, pretty much every two years I was getting on a plane and going over there. Sometimes I would go somewhere new. Sometimes I just go to the same places. It just didn't matter, but I was going and any excuse to sort of pursue material culture or, you know, the, the research, the geography, et cetera, it just got into my head. So there was a push into this idea of magic making the way that this Norse folk magic was making it. And they have this tradition called stave magic. And it's an Icelandic word that basically translates to stave magic, which is I think it comes from the idea that most of these spells would have been scrawled onto pieces of wood and driven in the ground on a property marker. So staves, you could call them spells or sigils, and it would be interchangeable. But they're also letters, staves. They're just used as for writing. They're basically- Those are the runes. Those are the runes. Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah. So maybe, yeah, explain how they're different because they, um, they use runes in staves, right? Well, runes are, it's the written it's the written Viking language, the written Norse language. Um, there are variants of it. It's a, it's a proto, I think it's an Indo-Germanic script yeah. that like originated in central Germany, whatever. It was a visualization of a spoken language, but more than anything, it was a divinatory tool. It was an oracle and the mythology of the Norse revolves around language and, and written language in particular, having like this powerful magical connotation. The runes were given the father god Odin after he hung upside down on a tree for seven days, I think. Amazing. So it's like they're heavy duty, they're dripping magic. And even though they're used for writing as well, they have this deep connection to magic. And I also think it has a lot to do with the fact that the, the language and the way the language is transmitted is very much about poetry and their poet, poetic tradition is their literary tradition. It's really beautiful and you can do a deep dive into it. And the, the, if anybody's interested, I would say, go get a copy of the poetic Edda E D D A, which is a collection of origin stories and, and, just kind of tales. It was basically a folio that was canonized. It's where all of the Thor comic books come from. It's it's that whole part of the MCU comes from the, the Edda. And uh, it's really cool. It's fun. It's a wild ride. And there's a lot of magic. And uh, it was an interesting moment because there are a lot of questions about gender and gender equality and where power resides and how gender roles are assigned and what does it mean, you know, in in one of the stories, it's basically confessed that if you want to be a really good male magician, you have to have an effeminate quality that you cultivate, which is called ergi. And I got really into that. I was like, oh, wow. It's like, it's, it's queering the space, right? Did the relationship work out? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The, okay. Because, you know, I feel like I might've never gone back 
to that place. I mean, some people, once you associate something with a relationship that you wanted that didn't work, it's too, it's insurmountable to like reclaim that spot as something really powerful to yourself. But how'd that work for you? My Scorpio intentions are like, if, if you're in, you're in for life. And even though I don't talk to this person anymore, and I, I tried to, to cultivate a post-relationship friendship with this person, and there was no glue to hold it together. And I made it clear. I was like, look, you're, you're canonized in my like mythological space. So, you know, so it's tough to come down from that <laughs> for better and for worse. I will be talking. I mean, you, you will be footnoted in all of my processing conversations from now here on out. She enabled some pretty powerful emotional spaces to open up for me that I think she was kind of aware of. I'm not, I'm not sure. Anyway. Well, she sounds cool, like hot pots in Iceland. That all sounds really good. Well, and then let me tell you, like, you know, you go back and it's like, like, yeah, I was insistent. I was like, okay, I need to, I need to cultivate my own relationship to this space. And uh, yeah, I think about, I, I do think about her when I go over there for sure. But I've been two times, two times since. And, uh, you know, I feel like I have my relationship to it. I have Icelandic cool. friends or Icelandic colleagues that I, you know, visit when I go there and that sort of thing. But anyway... Yeah, I'm what they call a returner. Oh, that's interesting. And I don't know if this is an actual thing, but the way the guy explained it to me, I, he sort of said something and I was like, oh, yeah, I've been here before. He's like, yeah, I can tell you're a returner. And I was like, what does that mean? He's like, there are two kinds of people that visit Iceland. There are those that come once and then there are those that come for the rest of their lives. I'm a returner. Yeah, Sarah's a returner for also. Sure. I feel you. It gets you. Yeah. It gets in. It's got a deep hooks for sure. In fact, I'm, I'm going, my 50th birthday is this year and I'm going to go spend 10 days over there. I've, I've got a research project, but I'm going, I'm going to spend my 50th. Oh, jealous. Um, I was going to go in September, but I decided to move to LA instead and be an adult about not messing that up through. Yeah, travel. no, that I, <laughs> I see the logic there. I work pretty closely. So you've got the runes and then you have these staves and the staves can have runes in them, but there is, a, there's a, a visual vocabulary. It's non-linguistic, but it's a visual vocabulary that has indicating qualities. And I think most sigil magic books will talk about this. I'm thinking of, oh, I'm not going to do her name. Well, my friend gave me the Sorcerer's Screed. Yeah, it's a great one. Which is, that's maybe a newer one. I just was looking it up and it's from the 40s, which I was actually surprised by. It's from the 40s. Well, okay, this is another thing to think about. Iceland was the last of the Europe, of the Western European nations to industrialize. And it was the last, well, actually, let's back up. It was the last to be Christianized and it was the last to be industrialized. Mm -hmm. So it has an abiding and un a, a stronger rural... <sighs> I mean this in a good way, and I don't want an Icelander to hear this and think I'm calling them like you know, country bumpkins because I'm not. There's an agrarian tie to the land that is unbroken that that I think has allowed that magical tradition to persist. So yeah, it, it lasted up until the 40s, and it's oh, still ongoing. Like I say, it's still ongoing, um, but the, the screed represents, I think, the last of the historical grimoires, right? Okay. Well, and I got the sense that that was translated or maybe compiled from older documents. They're all compiled. Oh, they are. Okay, cool. You you don't make a grimoire up. You make it from, I mean, you make yeah. some things up, but you are working from got previous it. material. And that work is no exception. There are repeats and things from other, I mean, this is the fun thing about it being a relatively small body of work is that 
you can have most of them on your desk mm -hmm. at once and see that these books have been talking oh, to each other. It's a really beautiful set of relationships. So, you know, and, and the, the Witchcraft Museum in Ahomovik has published three other books, I believe. That was an aha moment as well. I was like, oh my goodness, this material is all related. And they, they have been clandestinely passed between each other. There's a, an occult history here that hasn't been written yet. And the guy who founded the museum was starting to write it. And I think I'm sure there will be people that pick it up and are, because my take on it is, is much loose. I claim artistic license basically. So I made a book. I made a book. It's called a book of staves. It came out in 2018. It was published by Fulger press, which is this wonderful press that's been publishing books for almost 30 years now. I think 30 years this year of a cult related art and art practitioners. Robert Ansel, the founder is a, a, a really important scholar and knowledgeable about the British magical surrealist Osmond Spare, who's responsible for a lot of what we know today is chaos yeah. magic, but that's a whole other discussion and one that I'm not qualified to, to have. But anyway, Robert is, he makes beautiful books and I've collected the books for many, many years. And when I got to meet him, we hit it off and I was starting this body of work around that time. And he saw some of the drawings and we talked about it for a while and, and we came up with an idea for a book, which turned out to be mm. one of the things I'm most proud of in my artistic career. It's basically, there was a question at one point that said, I wrote a book. It's, it's a, I drew a book. I mean, I wrote a little essay in the beginning of it, but most of it is drawings. And then an anthropologist that I got, to, he's an anthropologist and an archeologist who specializes in Neolithic stone monuments. Oh, cool. And so is heavily invested in what the word he uses is heathen culture. And he is a lovely guy, Robert Wally. Is he the guy who has the, the YouTube channel? I don't think so. Do you know what I'm talking? Okay. Cause there's, there's a couple of guys that really focus on like stone circles and they did a movie and I felt like they were probably two of the main dudes, but I'm sure there's like a community. There's, there's a ton of people. There's a real Renaissance going on right now in terms of the the inferences that you can make in archeological excavation. But anyway, Robert wrote a really beautiful and very, I thought very magnanimous episode essay about the, the, the content of the book. Amazing. And then the coolest part of all is I got to use the eminent translation, the modern translation of the Edda into English is this woman, Carolyn Larrington, who is amazing. She sits, I, I'm 99% I'm sure she sits in the chair that was created for Tolkien at Oxford. Wow. But regardless of that, she is an Oxford Don and she, her specialty is Scandinavian languages. Yeah. So she has, I mean, yeah, she, I'm, I'm sure she knows how to read Elvish. She, I'm sure she could look at any of That's amazing. Tolkien's manuscripts and be like, oh yeah, that. Anyway, I've been working with an antiquated translation and I was assuming that we would use it because the, the, the copyright would have lapsed. Mm. And everybody said, Jesse, you can't use this translation. This translation is garbage. Oh. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? And they're like, well, why don't you email Larrington and see if, see what she says? And I was like, wow. she's an Oxford Don. She's not going to respond to my email. And she did. That's amazing. And she was super cool. She was super, super cool. And is really, really, really like great. I mean, great scholar, but a really nice person. And mm -hmm. she gave permission to use her translation. So we use that in places. And then to top it all off, she proofread what we did because there was a new edition coming out and she was like, wow, that's key. Can I proofread this? I just want to make sure my Icelandic renders right. So that was cool. Yeah. 
That's huge because like all the little characters that go with the letters, it's pretty. Oh, yeah. There were, believe me, there were like 40 things oh, that shit. none of us would have caught. And then the final bit was I, I had told Robert that my dream was to have it back translated into Icelandic, which no one does, right? I mean, every Icelandic, every, every Icelander speaks Icelandic, but right. they also speak English. I, I coincidentally, I had been working with a wonderful young artist who was from Iceland and I asked her, I said, if I pay you, would you translate this, these two essays into Icelandic? And she was like, yeah, yeah, that would be fun. So it's a, a bilingual publication for whatever that's worth. And that was fun. So yeah, it's... That's amazing. Wait, so I have a question about your staves. Have you used any of them in actual rituals or your daily life? So they don't work for me. Okay. I, I think that the, the energy that I put into them has to be gifted. I've made gifts of a lot of these for, for sure. And I've actually, people who've bought them, I've told them like, this is an actual spell. So, you know, if you want to think of it that way, you're welcome to. I mean, of course, you, it can just be another piece of artwork in your collection. But yeah, it is a spell and it has intentions and, you know, feel free to incorporate it into whatever, in whatever way you want. I have had people say that they're powerful objects that do things for them. So that's great. They're intended that way. And I, I did at first when I was first making them, I was using them. There was this one dream spell in particular and it never worked. It never, I never got results from it. And I had to come up with a, I was like, what could the possibility for that be? And yeah, this, this notion of how energy is mm. created and disseminated and passed around. I think, mm. I think my power has to be, it has to be Given. Gift, gift oriented. That's so interesting. Well, cool. I mean, I can't wait to read that. I think we should all go out and run and buy that. Are you working on anything now? Or are you talking about putting together the conference again or anything people should look out for? Yeah, yeah. There will be another Occult Humanities Conference. I can't give a date yet just because the NYU, they're hardcore about all the protocols. And we're still hashing out like what, you know, how do we get people in? Can people come in? Do they have to show yeah, ID? Yeah. You know, all that stuff. So we just kind of put it off for a while, but there will be another one. I'm okay. hoping it'll be next fall. And then we'll have to wait a year. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The soonest will be next fall, but yeah. we intend to do another one. And then the final, what I'm working on now, I've got a, I've got a bunch of projects that are in in process. I have a, oh, another wow. book project that that's pretty okay. much all I can say at this Top point. Top secret. Ideally, that would be out in the next year, but there's some stuff that's got to happen with that. The piece itself is finished. I just want to do it right. And there's some details that hopefully this fall we'll see sort of realized. And then I've got a show up in Berlin that'll be up. I think it's up through October. Where is it at? It's at a gallery called Come Again, question mark, and it's called The Venusians. And there's an artist in Berlin. He actually spoke at our first conference. His name's Elijah Berger, and he has a magical practice and his work is, is revolves around it, but he's curated the show in, in Berlin. That's pretty exciting. And he liked my new drawings. He was, he was really excited about my new drawings. I just wanted to, well, this is kind of like a sum up question, sort of a la, I don't know, Miranda July or something. As a teacher and as somebody who has a spiritual practice, and could you give oh. me and Sarah and listeners a little assignment that to help us I, I don't mean assignment, and I see you're, you're wrinkling various brows, not like an academic thing, but like what could we... I mean, it might just be like five minutes of meditation. How can we open ourselves up? The thing that I have gotten the most mileage out of, you know, we've talked about drugs. We've talked yeah. about ritual magic. We've talked about all these things. Like, I would have been so much better served if I had started with learning how to breathe. Breathwork is so simple 
deceptively simple and so powerful. You can combine breath work with a visualization practice. So it's like a closed eye breathing. There are lots of apps, breathing Mm. apps, where you basically look at a shape that sort of pulsates and you match your breaths to the, to the pulsating shape and you will get enormous benefit from it, both health, stress, anxiety. I've worked with a lot of students in the, a lot of millennials were over-medicated. I'm sure it's still happening, but it doesn't seem to be as big of a problem as it was. And they would come to college and want to get off all their meds and they would come into the office and be like, I'm going crazy. And I'm like, have you recently adjusted your medication? And they'd be like, yeah, stop taking them. I'm like, stop, go talk to your therapist right now. Go talk to your psychiatrist right now. You have to like get off it the way that they're going to tell you to do it. I am no, I'm not doing that anymore. But I will tell you that if in conjunction, if you learn how to breathe, it will help enormously. And it does. I had a a low level anxiety disorder. My pranayama has completely eliminated the need for other solutions to that problem. Breath work is, is the jam. Well, and I think there's an inherent mindfulness that has to happen to take one deep breath after another, because it's not, for me, it's not natural. I barely breathe, you know, like at any given time. So for whenever I'm thinking about breathing, it's always giving it 110 more attention than I was before. And which is something that then creates this mindfulness energy. And then you go into this other place because you're focusing so much on that. So yeah, I think that's really good advice. And you, again, you can, you can ritualize it as much or as little as you want. You can yeah. do this in your car, you know, like if you're sitting at a long light, you know, you can get three breaths in. So yeah, breath work has been one of my go-tos for over 25 years before. I mean, magic kind of saved me because for a lot, for a period of time, my entire existence was all about how to get high. It was just like, I just want to get away from whatever this is. And the, the narrative, the, 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 the space of magic sort of pulled me away from that in a way that was kind of life-saving well, yeah. in a lot of ways. Heavy metal Aww, actually saved yeah. my That's life. That's so sweet. <laughs> well, my entire spiritual life is run through Freddie Mercury. I live my spiritual life through this man in every conceivable sense. Awe, worship, wonder, intellectual curiosity, engagement, containment. There is not a concept of being that I do not filter through Queen and Freddie Mercury. He is a god, but he's a god. He's a god. And I, uh, yeah, I'll just leave. Yes, I mean, uh, I love him so much. No, the god of Zanzibar for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just to sort of let you know, I'm not messing around. Like one of my favorite records of all time is the Flash Gordon soundtrack, which I think is 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 a masterpiece. That film is a masterpiece, but that soundtrack. That soundtrack laid the groundwork for any other rock band to do soundtrack work. They set the the tone for it. So good. That man. Yeah. Okay. I wish you luck with the, the transcript. Thank you. Well, here, hold on. This is the recorded goodbye. Um, thank you so much for joining our podcast. We'll post everything in the show notes. It was a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure's mine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck with the good luck with this awesome podcast. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side-wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. 
Until we meet again in the woo.